seeking collaborations with influential people, at GZPR, we create passion-fueled collaborations that go beyond traditional representation, a performance agency that onboards new clients every month. Our focus is on POC collaborations. Contact us now at hellogzpr.com, a self-aware public relations agency exploring world perspectives with leading talents. Hello and welcome. My name is Tiffany Farag and welcome to Get to Know You, a podcast for those who want to open conversations and access deeper dialogue, where conversations can become stronger when we explore our thinking and behavior. Every Tuesday, a new question will be asked to a guest speaker. Genuine people here to have insightful conversations. My next guest speaker is from Middletown, California. She's a massage therapist, aquatic body worker, and yoga instructor. Now she focuses on writing her book, The Biomystical Womb. She is the founder of the Womb-Centered Healing Temple. On her website, samamorningstar.com, she creates a collaborative space to support people to learn about the importance of our experiences in and of the womb. She sees the importance of returning to a partnership model of relating with each other and with all beings and diligently applies this model to all her relationships. She loves to share her experience of how living in an embodied womb wisdom creates an abundant fountain of vitality that can nourish our dreams of correcting the course of humanity away from self-destruction towards harmonious communion and belonging in the ecology of life. Welcoming Sama Morningstar to get to know you. Welcome, Sama. Hi, thank you. So good to be here with you. Yeah, so great to have you on the podcast. I guess it would be great for the listeners to hear uh, you know, just briefly about what your womb-centered healing temple and how you go about, I guess, um, creating this space to to for people to learn and understand the importance of the womb. Well, I can share about my uh, how I got the vision for creating the space. Um, I knew that I needed to focus my healing work online and on on the womb and and yet the different business coaches and training programs that I was enlisting support with because this was new for me I was always a massage therapist and worked at spas and resorts and things so creating an online business was new Um, and I noticed as I worked with different business coaches that the some of the core values of womb-centered healing um, we're not being represented in the business models, even like the, the, the soul-centered entrepreneurial methods. Still, there were some core methods of doing business that felt completely off and misaligned with um, womb-centered healing. One example of that was um, uh, certain methods of psychological manipulation that are used just as standard practice in marketing and business. And at the core of my womb-centered healing personal practice, um, 
having exquisite ethics that really cares for each other and that really sets up a partnership model, anything that would disrupt that partnership model of relationship and mutual care, like psychological manipulation, even very subtle psychological manipulation, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't work for me. It wouldn't work even if I tried to implement those things, the clients that were coming to me, the students that were coming to me, it would disrupt our connection and not allow it to happen. Whereas other people in other lines of business could do it and it would work fine for them. It wouldn't work for me. And so I went on a pilgrimage to a sacred site called the Chalice Well in Glastonbury, uh, UK. And There's a beautiful world peace garden there uh, all around these beautiful fountains and springs coming from this well where the water turns everything red. So it's considered to be, it's got really high iron in it. So it turns all the stones and the fountain fixtures red. And so it's considered to be the place where Mother Earth is menstruating or one of the places. And so... Um, I went there and I made offerings and I had a ceremonial, um, day there where I asked, I had recorded a meditation for myself to, to ask the spirits, spirits of mother earth, the spirits of the land, the ancestors, my descendants, and, and, you know, my whole team of, of how I was receiving guidance to do this work to guide me on the practical business aspects of things. And I just immediately, as soon as I started asking those questions, my pen would just not stop. And I filled up page after page after page in my notebooks about this online womb-centered healing temple, which is basically modeled after, um, you know, brick and mortar businesses that are often going on for healing arts practitioners that I noticed one that I, you know, received a lot of inspiration for one in um, Glastonbury too, called the goddess house where all of these practitioners would pool together and rent or purchase a building, a space, right. And create a beautiful space, you know, decorating all the rooms in the theme of, of, the goddess house or whatever theme that that healing center might have. And I'd worked at other healing centers like that, where people, you know, a group of people got together and set up the space and then would gather practitioners to pay rent or become partners, founding members, whatever um, setup they had as far as a collaborative business model. And then all participate in the workings of the business and co-create it together. And everybody would bring their individual clients and then refer their clients to other people in the, in the center that perhaps had a diff, little different area of expertise and, and create this sort of holistic ecology of, of business that's cooperative and no competition, or at least that's the ideal now. I've experienced it in various different ways, you know, working better some places and not so well other places. And I'm very aware of how human relationships and and how, um, you know, the the archetype of the wounded healer and and how our wounds can um, um, disrupt uh, harmonious relationships. And that happens in every area of our life. And that certainly can happen in these kinds of collaborative business relationships. And my intention for for this online space like that, where there would be 
other people coming in and, and, you know, being part of this online temple would be that the way that we related to each other as fellow practitioners would be part of our healing process where we would learn together how to relate in the true partnership model and then model that for our students and clients in, in how we, you know, go about organizing events together and cooperating to, to create the space and all of that. And so that was several years ago. And you're still able to create that, uh, the same kind of level of experience online? Like, is the effect well, still maintained in some kind of way? Because I guess, like, you would think in person things would be more, you, you know, the experience would be a whole lot different, more effective. But would you, is it still established through an online, through an online kind of process? Well, it depends on what your definition of effective is. So, yes, an in-person group, people can have a much more intense experience right there while they're there with the group. But then what happens when they go home? So I've had numerous experiences of going to in-person retreats, for example. Yes. And having a really intense experience being surrounded by all these people that are all going through the same process together and facilitators that are holding space for everyone in a physical space. And then going home and not having that intense physical support so with it's everyone gone. around anymore. And then it's gone. And then how do you create that for yourself? Yes. So in that sense, the online programs I feel are actually more effective because the person, each person who participates in an online thing is responsible to the degree that they're able to create the experience for the, the physical aspects of the experience for the most part for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that process starts to create change in their lives from the get-go. Yeah, because so, that's the hardest part of it all. Like the hardest that part is. is creating, like when we do all these self-help or personal development kind of programs or healing things that we do or we find or we go and do these, um, the hard part is implementing it in your life when you go home. It's like exactly. how these daily, you know, daily things that I need to do to maintain my growth and, and it's just not a one day or a one weekend process. Exactly. And so instead of, and even online, you know, a lot of people try to emulate these really short-term in high-intensity experiences like they would do normally in an in-person gathering. And they're doing, you know, people are doing one week with lots of activities every day or 12 weeks with big intense activities each week where people have to like set aside everything mm. in their, everything else in their lives if they can. And, um, and and then do that, and it just feels like this this drop off of a cliff. At That's the right. End. It's no it's no you... room or space to grow. It's like well, whatever exactly. we're learning, like maybe one day or one hour, uh, like it's um, you need to implement that, I guess, for a period of time, exactly. over a month or two, through other yeah. smaller activities for you to see actual growth and change within yourself. Right. And so my my online programs and that I already have. Um, guest instructors also participating in are much more over the long term. So I have a 13 month 
apprenticeship program mm. where there's only eight months, eight, four to five week periods in that whole 13 months where we're actually exploring new material. And, and that material is happening two or three days of that week. There's new material that's coming in um, that's available, but it's not required. Yeah. So people can regulate for themselves how much of that material they want to engage with. And if they're still working with the material from a few weeks ago or a month ago, they're encouraged to stick with that material um, and, or see how the new material is part of or helps with that old material that's challenging for them. So for example, part of the program is to do some reparenting. And that's something that that is a lifelong project, right? <laughs> of like looking at how the parenting we received may have set us up for better or for worse in our adult lives and how we might be repeating those patterns and, you know, bringing our adult self and our, and the skills that we have to heal trauma and things like that to those moments and creating new ways of being for ourselves. Well, some people get stuck that they have to finish that before they can move on to these next things. But the truth is these next things like the coming of age and then the, the, the creative fertility and the creative partnership and all of these things um, are developing the skills, more skills to be able to do the reparenting. Ah, so there's this, there's this going back and forth in along the timeline of our lives that, that is really helpful for that integration. And so people are often used to these either really intensive um, that, that are hard to integrate or, um, you know, linear timeline kind of, you have to finish one thing before you can move on to the next. And so that's been a big part of, of the educate, the re-education of right. the participants is like, no, you don't have to finish that. Hmm. Um, but you can listen to your inner guidance if you need to stay focused on this. Yeah. But then see if perhaps this new thing might be supportive of where you're stuck to help move things along. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and so there it's um, unpacking and unwinding a lot of things that, that we learned that aren't necessarily serving us. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, and, and, and in a very integrated way. So for example, I've just discovered that a lot of people in the program never learned or have a challenge with putting something on their calendar that's something that they want to do. That's not for someone else, but something that's important to them. And so they've had to learn how to do that. And sticking to that and making sure that they show up for that. Yeah. Instead of just getting blown by the winds of everybody else's needs and desires in their lives especially for women. And I know that that's been a process for me to really, you know, use my calendar as a tool to say, okay, this is the time that I reserve for my self-care. This is the time that I, you know, when I have a class or a course or a program that's important to me, I make sure, you know, I sit down with my calendar and I make sure to schedule that in so that it doesn't get bumped out by other things that it might, that, other people's needs or desires of me, right? Yeah. And and prioritize that. So that alone 
is a really integrating tool that they don't really usually cover. People who do like intensive in-person workshops, there's no like sitting down and saying, okay, let's look at your calendar for the next couple of months and let's have you schedule in times when you can do these practices with yourself again. Mm. And there's not even really uh, tending to the fact that people don't know how to do the practices on their own. They're only able to do it sometimes, and I was for a long time, only able to do practices in a class with a teacher leading it. So self-practice is a skill that needs to be learned. Absolutely. And so so I feel actually if you if you shift the the definition of effective that online programs are actually more effective for full integration even if sitting in that Zoom call doesn't give you the same intensity as sitting in a room with the teacher right there and the other participants right there. Yeah, you're not going to get that intensity. But you will very likely, if you really work it, get yeah. more integrative um, results. More lasting and, into your life and like exactly. I guess, ongoing. Yeah. Well, thank you, for, thank you for sharing all of that. It was very, very... Uh, uh, very a lot of knowledge, a lot of information there, but I think it's really, really great, and like it gives me a better, clearer picture as well as to what what the whole process is about, and and you know makes a lot of sense as you're talking there. Like you know, I do a lot of programs myself, myself, a lot of different things, and and I find when they're so short or like we get so much information, um, but we're never able to maintain them so easily until our lives and it's not like a daily thing that we're like we're not trying to make it a lifestyle which what we need is which is what we need to do so this program is like creating it make embedding it into our lifestyle so that's so great and really fantastic and i think um yeah a lot of the listeners i think would um i think it'd be great to jump on board and um see what you provide and 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 help with their healing and and in in you know what they need to do i guess as you mentioned their trauma which will basically bring us into our main topic of conversation uh, today, which is the question is, should we identify traumas from the past? Now, this one, I, I, you know, I, I know I read a lot about how people like, oh, you know, you need to heal your traumas, you need to heal some things from your old rooms and things like, and things like that. But I guess, um, you know, I honestly think it really varies on what the trauma is. I think, you know, if it's something so intense, like let's take, for example, you know, I'm sure you've heard cases like this where from the same family, maybe there were siblings. Um, and I've read, yeah, I've read a lot of cases like this where, you know, it's maybe some older siblings were maybe um, molesting their younger sibling. And they're both children, though, at the time, or, th- you know, and, you know, it, it maybe happens over years and years and years, but then for some reason it stops. And then these people are in their later years in life. Maybe they're in their, you know, uh, 40s or later, or even in their 60s, but yet they still see these siblings, like they're not people that they've just gotten rid of. They're still in their lives. Now, in situations like that, I would say, like, bringing up that trauma or trying to resolve it or talk about it or heal from it would be detrimental in their life. What well, would you... it, it, again, it really depends on how you define the process of 
healing from a trauma and what's going on in the current relationship with that sibling and and what's going on in that person who needs the healing in their life okay so that i would i would say that there's no one cookie cutter answer to this question okay yeah. so first of all how do we define the process of healing from past traumas like this. So for example, um, healing from sexual abuse, okay? Many people um, erase the memory of sexual abuse, especially if it happened in early childhood, from their minds as a coping mechanism because the trauma is so intense that their small child self just completely left consciousness. It's called dissociation. So uh, that's that's a method that the body uses to get through, especially recurring, ongoing trauma uh, that they have no power of getting away from or stopping, is to leave consciousness altogether, leave the body so that they're not feeling what's going on. And it's very hard to remember. It also erases that experience from memory. Okay. And some approaches to trauma healing, especially talk therapy, really focus primarily on getting a person who has symptoms of having some of this dissociation that still goes on. Because once that pattern of dissociation is established, then that becomes the go-to pattern for anything in that person's life, even after the abuse has stopped. Anything that reminds them, their system of that abuse, it could be anything from a smell to a turn of phrase to an ambiance in a room or a space. So what you're saying is with an when object... When they remember these different things, do they like dissociate themselves from those things as well? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So, so like say during the sexual abuse, there was a picture on the wall mm-hmm. in the space where the abuse was typically happening or it happened at a certain time of day or their abuser had a smell on their breath every time. Those kinds of visceral memory triggers will if that healing hasn't taken place will create severe dissociation oftentimes this is what happens when people have multiple personalities they become a different person and their normal uh functioning personality disappears and they become a different personality. Some people even regress to the age when the abuse was happening and start behaving like that small child. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't remember it. They wake up a min, you know, however many minutes later or an hour later, or even a day later, and they don't know where they've been. Yeah. And this can be very disruptive to their lives. And so depending on how severe of a dissociation response. I mean, some people go into a different personality or just dissociate from their body. They're no longer feeling, they're no longer fully present. 
and might go on a, some kind of an autopilot programming that may or may not be the most functional programming that they have. They may be, you know, in some kind of work, like most people that have been traumatized end up in some kind of healing arts profession. Mm. And they they would need to be present, fully present for their clients and patients. So they'd have to have gone and, through and healed. And they need to go through. through. Exactly. But and with people even, who who are, you'd say like are in like the normal maybe world and they haven't, you know, reverted to harming themselves in other in many ways or haven't, you know, had such a strong distortion as you're talking about but and like you wouldn't be able to pick up anything in their lives almost like it's been it's suppressed so hard that it's almost you don't see any like abnormality you don't see anything like they're harming themselves would you say then um well i would then look at the quality of their relationships and the quality of their lives. Mm. Are they fully able to fulfill their dreams? How happy are they in their lives and in their relationships? And when this really starts to come into play, even people who are relatively well adjusted to, well, first of all, we have to say, I have to say that our mainstream normal society is very sick. What do you mean? It's not healthy, okay? So mainstream normal society is based on principles that dehumanize us. Yeah. For example, systematic systemic racism that says one group of people get more privileges, more rights, more safety, more access to resources and wealth than another group of people. Yes that uh, one group of people has the right to dominate another group of people and everybody is vying to gain those rights for themselves. And it creates a system that doesn't take care of everyone that, that makes everyone compete and work to the bone in order to receive their basic sustenance in the society. So that system alone is very sick And Mm -hmm. those who are successful in that system have accepted a level of dehumanization, of disconnection from their fellow human beings and the planet and nature and ancestry, because it requires, at least in the United States, and I'm imagining that this is true other places in the world, and I've talked with other people who live other places in the world that assure me that, yeah, that happened, that's happening here too. And when I look at history, historically, all the the fun foundational events have happened everywhere in the world that, that to set this up. Okay? So you're saying that like those people who are successful in that kind of environment, are, are they've like, accepted you know, that. And there's like those layers and they're kind of adding more layers to them, except going the exactly. opposite way instead of taking the layers off. Exactly. So, so for example, disconnection from ancestry is one of them. Disconnection from the body. So that dissociative response of disconnecting from the body, disconnecting from the spirit, disconnecting from nature, disconnecting from any kind of spirituality. And if you look at what makes a successful person in modern society, it requires all of those things. Disconnection from empathy. You know, it it baffles me. 
that's yeah. a big one actually that really bothers me with a lot of people. Like right. I always think that part of the brain, because I know it's part of the brain that's just underdeveloped. Yeah. And it's actually been deliberately turned off because if you, if you start to relate to people in, in like corporate management, There's, they don't have know, it at all. <laughs> they, they've actually had to turn it off. And I think it's part of the training because in order to be successful in corporate management, you have to make decisions that are harming large numbers of people and the environment and, and, you know, the ecology of life over and over again. That's an sure. intrinsic part of many corporate models of, of business. You know? Would you say then people who kind of keep moving up and moving for moving up in like maybe levels of power, that that empathetic part of their brain is almost like you said, is just you turned it is turned off. Right, because and that those levels of power in the in the typical model of power in our mainstream society is a power over. Which require which requires people to steal other people's power, to take other people's power from them, to mm. gain more and more power for themselves. So they have to shut down in order to do that successfully. They have to shut down their empathy for the people that they're taking power from, sure. so that they don't feel the pain of the person that they're taking power from. And our empathy is a intrinsic human quality that is meant to help us find a harmonious ecology of relationship with each other and other beings, other yeah. living beings and life in general, that we can feel the harmful effects, the harmful experiences of other people. Yeah. And in order to sustain this system of harming the many for the luxurious wealth of the few, the, the, those few have to completely deaden that intrinsic human ability to feel mm. the pain of other beings. Wow. I love and how you're talking about this because, like, it's something that always plays in my head. It's like, you know, when, when you're, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, how are these people this way or how are they not caring? How do they go to sleep at night? And it's just like, how, how, how? So you're saying to me that a lot of this comes back down to traumas and 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 them kind of exactly. not dealing with the traumas in their life and then all these different things and personality changes and and you're saying the switch off of empathy mm-hmm. um it, it kind of develops from this lack of identifying traumas in their past yeah and so you know even before any of these like sexual abuse traumas may have gone on um the the birth the practices of birthing and supporting pregnant women and even conception. So for example, if, if we asked the question of, of yourself and myself and listeners, did your mother have an orgasm when you were conceived? Would you be able to for sure answer that? Absolutely. Yes. No question about it. Mm. Why is that so question I've, important? Because that that state of pleasure when you're conceived sets a certain blueprint for your life and if only your father is having that pleasure and your mother is not then that sets a blueprint that fathers get to have pleasure men get to have pleasure mothers do not hmm and if you're born into a female body, 
then that sets a blueprint that pleasure isn't for you. And if you're born into a male body, that sets a blueprint that it's okay for you to have pleasure and for women to not have pleasure. Not to mention the fact that it activates certain cells, certain parts of your DNA and others not for pleasure and bliss. So certain feminine parts of yourself, whether you're born into a male or female or other gendered body, because there's more like 11 genders that actually happen biologically. So about 4% of the population is biologically born hermaphroditic. And many, many, several of those can't, you can't see on the surface. So you can be born with uh, female genitalia, both uh, internal and external and have male DNA and vice versa. And you can have external genitalia of one gender and internal genitalia of the other gender. So there's all these ways that people can be born that biologically they don't even, they don't fit in the binary gender system that we have. And there's also then ways psychologically that can develop uh, regardless of what that biological birth is. So just to uh, speak to that, 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 um, you know, but I do talk about male and female because there needs to be that, that for conception, as far as we know, to Mm -hmm. happen a mother and a father to conceive. Mm. Um, Now there's, we're getting creative with all of that as well. (laughs) So, so, but even like folks that are um, not wanting to have heterosexual sex, but, are finding ways like artificial insemination and things like that uh, are discovering how important it is to do that in an orgasmic way to mm. have that moment of pleasure, at least for the mother her, who is going to be gestating that baby. Yeah. So you're um, saying that you can have these kind of like, I don't know if that you like, is that con- is considered like a trauma if that does not happen uh, what you're talking about, but if you, well, can you have these traumas before you're born? Yeah. And that's what I'm saying is that, you know, there's varying degrees of, of trauma. And I would say that um, if there's a way that we're designed, like, to be orgasmic during sexual activity, right? Mm -hmm. And we're denied that. We're not sat, that's not satisfied. Because that's a that's a pretty intrinsic desire, and um, because of the the trauma that uh, particularly women have experienced around sexuality, um, heterosexual sexuality, that is sort of an ingrained thing over many generations of not even really knowing about orgasm and having female orgasm be completely neglected, disregarded, undervalued. And so that's an ongoing collective trauma of having that intrinsic human right to be fully expressed and, and experienced in the full potential of pleasure that's available in our human life to have that denied is traumatic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's a, and it's a collective ongoing generational trauma and it's related to other traumas because oftentimes the inability to have an orgasm is related to 
to the fact that the mother never had it, their mother had never had an orgasm or, mm. you know, that there were other traumas along the way, more severe that create, have created um, tension and um, the inability to relax. And there may be trauma, traumatic um, things going on in the relationship between the, the father and the mother domination and it's very likely that being dominated and having one's desires and needs disregarded and you know not uh not central in the yeah. decision making of the family that's traumatizing yeah absolutely there's all kinds i guess like you know a lot of people when they think of trauma they always think of like you know, thing. physical assault, yeah, like some kind mm-hmm. of uh, sexual abuse. It's all rape. All these, you know, all these things are what people that what comes to mind. And then, like, I think you know, maybe some people think they've never had any traumas. I don't know if that could be possible. Like, I yeah, well, I saw some never to experience any trauma. Oh, not I, I, I don't think so. Not in this day and age, and especially if you de- you widen your your definition of what trauma can, you know, what, how we can actually experience trauma. So what's the definition of experiencing trauma? That something is happening that is detrimental to you. Yeah. To your mind, body, your mind, body, or spirit in any of these ways. So having your desires be disregarded time and again, and invalidated time and again, that's traumatizing. Yeah. And the response to that that kind of trauma is very similar to the response to, you know, acute trauma where somebody's actually uh, attacking you or assaulting you or abusing you in some overt way. But that prolonged little bit of abuse, like, no, I'm not going to consider your point of view in this big decision that I'm making that's going to affect you. It's like being murdered by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like you're insignificant, you're being dismissed. Exactly. You don't very traumatic. Yeah. And and this and that you don't you don't even have sovereignty over your own life because somebody else thinks they own you. Yeah, sure. And and the effects of that period of humanity where men, you know, where women were property, were considered to be property of their fathers and then their husbands. Yes. You know, that that traumatizing way of looking at things, that dehumanizing way of living life is at the foundation of much of our societal structures. And we're still struggling to heal from that collectively. So there's nobody alive today that doesn't have some kind of at least this collective trauma that we're dealing with, even if they are at the top of the heap because they're white and they're male. First of all, my question would be, were they circumcised? So that's what difference would that make? Oh, it's a huge thing. First of all, most infant circumcision is done with no anesthesia based Mm -hmm. on this archaic idea that babies don't experience pain. Mm -hmm. And it drastically alters the brain structure of those babies. Drastically. And it, and it creates this psychic division because suddenly their mother isn't protecting them anymore. So it creates this psychic division between the, the, the boy child and the mother. 
Ah, so not with okay, interesting. So it's like it's almost like like would the baby subconsciously feel that my mother wasn't there to protect me from exactly. going through this pain? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's and it's horrible when you when you look into and I'm not going to go into the details here because it's traumatizing even just to look into the the procedure described medically. Yeah. And and what actually happens in that procedure. So if anyone's curious about this and I encourage you to like, make yourself really comfortable, sit down with a cup of tea and have a support person afterwards. (laughs) Yeah. Ready for you to help you process the information because it's horrendous. Yeah. And you know it, but then it gets into all of this difficulty with, you know, should I even be saying this when this is central practice for many religions and cultural systems that have been persecuted throughout history. Mm. You know, so Mm. should I even be saying that criticizing this central religious identifying practice? Yeah. You know, pointing that out. And I say I should because I feel like this this practice is one of the central um, fundamental ways that these dehumanizing um, uh, patterns that we've evolved into started with. And it was and a lot of people still see this as normal and like and acceptable and and um, and in fact, uh, you know are deterred by the possibility of not doing it because of all of these erroneous beliefs about it and social sanctioning that their son might receive. And there's all these reasons why people are, are pressured into going, going into, you know, going ahead and having that done. And, and, and then I feel it's central to the fact that most Perpetrators of violent sexual acts are men. Uh, because almost all, I would say. <laughs> I'm sure there's some examples of some. Yeah. I mean, I know for one, there there was a book that I read about. Um, I can't remember the name of the book. Um, It was in my psychology studying days, undergraduate psychology days. Mm -hmm, I read mm -hmm. a book about a case study of a woman who, whose mother severely sexually abused her when she was a baby. And, um, and then she grew up to have all these split personalities and, you know, it's very interesting Like with, with sexual assault and things like that, you know, the statistics of it are it's always of someone you know it's more likely like a parent or a relative that does that which is something that blows my mind yeah and so if you imagine all of these boy babies their first experience being in the world is having the tip of their penis cut off with no anesthesia then that that changes their whole relationship to and and is the foundation the blueprint of their relationship with sexuality and their sexual feelings. Mm. And there's this trauma that's held inside that if we don't heal it, then we end up hurting people, others in the same way that we were hurt. And if this part doesn't motivate people to 
address their trauma, then I don't know what will. Because when we're traumatized in any way and we don't release and recover from that trauma that's held in our bodies, we will either be hurting other people in some similar way or we will end up getting sick in those areas later on in life. So you're saying we now, should all identify our traumas from the past. I'm not saying we should all have we all have to identify the trauma. Okay. I'm saying we all need to address the trauma, which is not necessarily the same thing. So like I said at the beginning, one uh, approach to addressing trauma is to do talk therapy and to like somehow bring up the memories that are buried deep down inside and become aware of the actual story of what actually happened. This has been proven to be not very effective as a as a, a complete treatment. It this can is, sorry, be, this is addressing the trauma. Well, this is, this is one way, one way of addressing okay. the trauma is to identify and remember everything that happened. Yeah, I don't know how that would be effective. Like, why would you want to go through the pain of that? Because, exactly, because what happens is the whole, the, you know, the whole system, the brain, the nervous system that's already programmed to respond in this disassociative way as you're remembering it, will continue to dissociate. And it just deepens that pattern of dissociation, dissociation, trying to, you know, forget that that happened. Now, what is effective based on lots of years of of research about healing acute trauma, um, there's a book out there called The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, yeah. this uh, renowned trauma researcher who has a really funky name that I can never remember. Mm. Bessel van der Kolk. There, I remembered it. Hey. Bessel van der Kolk. You can understand <laughs> when I say it, why it's hard to remember. Yeah. Um, he did, you know, he was one of the leading researchers and the founder of this um, trauma research facility in Boston, working with um, veterans, war veterans and sexual assault uh, survivors, okay, over the course of many, many years, and wrote a book which came out finally in 2016 about how talking therapy actually doesn't help the whole system to recover. You know, going back and remembering and talking about everything, it just uh, more deeply ingrains the the trauma response exactly. patterns. Yeah, and so the first chapter, then the whole first half of the book, and the drug therapies don't really help to, for recovery. You're just numbing either. yourself. Exactly. Um, yeah. So the first half of the book, he goes into the science in detail about what the drugs actually do and what the trauma, the talking therapy actually does in the biochemistry of a traumatized person mm-hmm. and how it does not get them out of that trauma loop. Yeah. And then and so the, what second, was... the second half of the book is all about the things that he did find that did help the biochemistry and the physiology of traumatized people to move towards wellness again and do you remember and some of those things the first of course i do of course. <laughs> this is like the most important part of the book yeah so the first thing was yoga and that's been my ah, practice my yeah. whole life so breathing yes 
movement where we're really paying attention to how our body feels. We're getting into the body and we're practicing taking care of ourselves. Yeah. And then I would even go so far as to say that we can develop that to be, to be even more um, uh, trauma recovery oriented. And mm-hmm. this is part of my work because the other trauma recovery specialists have identified even more aspects of that that can of what actually helps um, trauma survivors to recover. Um, and I'll go into that in a minute, but I wanted to talk more about some of the other uh, uh, healing modalities, EMDR, eye yeah. movement, eye movement, um, something, DR, D recovery. I, I can't remember what D stands for, yeah. but it's, a, it's using eye movements, um, which like is... hypnotization? No, it's not like hypnosis. What it is, is it's using the brain's natural method of processing what happens in life in dreams, Mm. which is rapid eye movement. So during dreams, the mind, the brain and our whole system through the rapid eye movements with the rapid eye movements as a central part of it is sorting out what happened and putting things in the past that belong in the past and then understanding what's happened, what's current. Okay. With traumatized people that don't get to complete the resolution of a trauma. So for example, a child that's being sexually abused doesn't get to do any of the things that the body naturally wants to do when it's being traumatized. Mm. So running away, fighting back, yelling, yeah, telling somebody about it, getting themselves out of the situation. Okay. So because that never got to happen because this was a child and the care the person who was doing this to them was their caretaker and they were dependent on that person for their well-being, that got disrupted. So and then the the prolonged nature of that make the brain never got to process that and put it in the past. Yeah. Got in the habit of being in this state of constant vigilance because this could happen at any time. Mm. And the same thing happen happens to war veterans um, who continue even in their dreams at night, reliving the thing. And, and because there was a dissociation, they couldn't get away from it, whatever happened. um, And they dissociated. when anything reminds them, a smell, a sound, you know, the slamming of the door, anything that reminds them, the brain thinks it's happening again and can mm-hmm. go into flashbacks. It's happening now. While so they're that sleeping. creates while they're sleeping, while they're awake. Yeah. This is what creates the the dysfunctional behavior in the waking life and why people are hurting other people because whether they disassociate a lot and do something violent because they think that somebody's, you know, that they're back in the war scene. Yeah. Or or they go into um like sexual abuse survivors will often go into recreating abusive situations into yeah. in their life. Um in their adult life when that abuse isn't happening anymore, they end up 
recreating that with the with their partners that they end up being with and like that recreating that perpetual state and um because of that dissociation and because of all kinds of biochemical stuff and so um the getting out of that habitual it's almost like our system gets addicted to stress hormones and Mm. addicted to the stress response and has to recreate that or thinks it's happening now so the way that emdr works is it initiates the the brain's process of reprogramming and say and putting that experience in the past like put compartment compartmentalizing um, I wouldn't necessarily call it that because that term can kind of have a, a, a negative connotation or a detrimental connotation. If we compartmentalize things too much, yeah. we can't see how everything is woven together, together. anymore. So I don't cool. tend to use that term because um, that's part of the wounding is that we compartmentalize things too much. Ah. Um and we can't see the ecology anymore. That's part of how people can lose their empathy, you know, get rid of their empathy because they compartmentalize. Mm. So what I would say is more organizing um, and becoming current. Yeah. That this is happening now, that trauma isn't happening anymore. But, and so that can be done with the eye movements, but it only works with some people because sometimes that trauma is stored. And most of the time it's stored in our body. Like that need to run away is stored in body tension. And I'm, I'm a a massage therapist and a um, yoga instructor. So I really feel and see how chronic tension in the body is, is this buildup of all of these, um, traumas that have happened that haven't been discharged. So I've taken um, what I've learned from other teachers about trauma recovery who um, uh, uh, I always get mixed up between Peter Levine and Stephen Levine, one of the Levines. <laughs> um, one of them is a meditation instructor and one of them is a trauma um, recovery specialist who writes about looking at wild animals and why wild animals don't have PTSD after the hunt. And the reason for that is after the hunt, the, pre- the predator animals lay around licking themselves and going, if you think, like, think of a pride yeah. of lions yeah. afterwards, right? So they're releasing that intensity of all of the hormones that got them going to be able to hunt and bring down their prey, right? Sure. And and the danger of that moment because you know the prey aren't the only ones that can get hurt in those interactions. You know no. the, the prey animals have sharp hooves and you know uh, will fight back, right? So so there's there's a danger in that moment, but they lay around recovering from that, releasing that energy from their body, and also mm. eating, eating and sleeping afterwards resets their nervous system and they've already discharged all that running fighting energy by actually doing it right yeah now the prey who get away they'll get themselves to safety and then sit around going to discharge any further energy. So if you ever come to one of my yoga classes, you're going to be hearing me encourage you to do horse breath and to shake your body and to do lion's breath. And this is a way that these are ways that we can uh, release 
the built-up trauma from uh, built-up trauma responses that and tension in our body, and and actually vocalizing um, the sound of our own voice if done in a therapeutic way, uh, like toning or chanting. This is why. Um, you know, there's all these spiritual practices that that do a lot of vocalizing, chanting, singing hymns, things like that. It actually has the effect of neutralizing the stress hormones in our cells and producing pleasure hormones. The ah. same pleasure hormones that are um, produced or pleasure substances, nitric oxide I'm specifically talking about is a substance. It's, it's a gas. It's not necessarily called a hormone, but our veins and our bones and our tissues, per, when we're having pleasure, produce nitric oxide. And typically we think of oxytocin as the pleasure hormone, which also neutralize, can neutralize the stress hormones and stress hormones suppress the production of oxytocin. Um, Nitric oxide is produced not by our endocrine system, but by our blood vessels and our bones and different parts of our body, our tissues, when we're experiencing pleasure, but it's very short-lived. So we need to be having pleasure all the time. And when we're um, producing nitric oxide in our body adequately by having orgasms or having pleasurable thoughts or having pleasurable experiences, you know, self-massage, pleasurable food, pleasurable sensual, sensual experiences, all of our organs work better. Stress mm -hmm. hormones decrease the, fun the healthy functioning and damage the healthy functioning of all of our organs and tissues. Whereas nitric oxide, pleasure hormones, pleasure gas and pleasure hormones increase the healthy functioning of all of our organs and tissues. That's why yeah. pregnant women who are being flooded with oxytocin all the time feel like this glowing ball of life, right? And can look oh. like that too. Yeah. Some, not all, but some. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why pregnant women often forget the pain or stress of the birthing process because of the, if it's not disrupted, the production of oxytocin at the end when they're bonding with their baby and they forget all about it. Yeah. And it's sure. neutralized. It's neutralized. And so, and the pleasure of breastfeeding, if it's done properly, can be quite orgasmic for mothers. And 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 yet, you know, we don't have information about this because this has been suppressed and disregarded how women feel, whether they're not they're having pleasure. All of that has been disregarded and has been a blueprint for generations that it doesn't matter when it really does, because yeah. that that neutralizes not only that stress response, if the mother had any stress during the birth or during the pregnancy, which this day and age is pretty much everyone. I mean, there's, there's a few people that are being able to set up their lives uh, in a stress-free way, but, yeah. but most people are, are, are experiencing uh, some level of, you stress. know, some level of stress and it's just normal, right? It's just yeah. considered to be normal. Well, you and, need some and, level of stress anyway for like relative to like dealing with pains or problems that like you need to have, you know, it's a manager of managing the, managing the stress because we're all going to mostly have that. In the way that society is right now. Yeah. But as you notice, things are changing yeah. and things are crumbling. The systems that we have now Which is are great. crumbling <laughs> because they're not sustainable. Because no. it's self-destructive. If we tried to continue in the status quo, we're not going to last much longer. 
No. So what? back to the modalities that you were talking about. So you say like the mm-hmm. main one is yoga and that I, what was that called again? I-E- EMDR. Now there were several other in, others in this book, but they're yeah. not any that I have explored. Okay. And I haven't okay. even explored EMDR personally, but sure. my husband has. Um, okay. Um, but I have explored yoga and yeah. I have also explored another healing modality called, uh, and I don't know if this one was in the book that, that this other Levine person developed called um, somatic experiencing. So it's more about getting into feeling the way that the nervous system, the way that the body is responding to anything that's going on and returning to a place of pleasure comfort and resourcing to to regulate the nervous system back into a place of ease pleasure and well-being and and a lot of healing modalities even spiritual healing modalities um, have this erroneous idea that if you just keep digging and going into the pain point that that's the only way to really get to the healing when actually that's just re-traumatizing. Yeah, it's like, I don't think so it's like oftentimes like ego patterns that are criticized by spiritual um, modalities are oftentimes like the scab on the wound that needs to stay there until the wound heals from underneath. And a lot of healing modalities are constantly ripping off the scab, mm-hmm. saying you need to look at this. The scab is the problem, but it's the scab is not the problem. No. The scab is helping the healing, keeping that wounded area safe until the person's life becomes safe. Mm. And it can and th- they experience that safety in their life enough that that wound can heal. Yeah. And so that's why I also said that, you know, it really depends on that hypothetical person that you talked about at the beginning, what their relationship is like with that sibling. If that Mm. sibling is continuing to uh, enact emotional abuse on them and their relationship is abusive, then just maintaining that relationship the way that it is is not necessarily a good thing for either of those people. No. So even if one person went to into a trauma healing process and remembered the abuse and started to address it for themselves and got to the point where they realized, you know what, I cannot be in relationship with this sibling anymore in order to heal myself and have a better quality of life, then I would say that would be a good thing. Because just because somebody, you know, we have this idea that family is um, somehow exempt from any kind of ethical guidelines about how we treat each other. And that, that because they're family, that we should maintain those relationships at all cost. But if the abuse is continuing, and I know this is the case for myself, the most healing thing for the improvement of humanity and the species, as well as the individual for the evolution is to say, you know what, this is not okay. And if you're not able or willing to grow and change and heal with me, then I need to leave this relationship. Hmm. And, yeah. and that can be the same with somebody who's um, has, because of their sexual abuse, has perpetuated in their life uh, abusive relationships with people they work with, with 
people they got married to or are in romantic relationship with, with their own children. And this is often when people who suffered from sexual abuse start to realize the importance of doing healing about with, around that for themselves, yeah. even if it's scary to go back. And because even if you do take a somatic approach, sometimes the memories will come up. But if you're holding them in that somatic approach and titrating between the difficult memory and the safety of the here and now and the comfort and the pleasure of the here and now, then you can, there are ways like with the somatic experiencing therapy and other somatic therapies. Now there's more and more psychotherapists that are recognizing the importance of this because the talking therapy wasn't getting anywhere. (laughs) When I was studying psychology as an undergrad, there were no options for somatic therapy that hadn't, that didn't get developed until much later. So that's why I went into. Well, society all thinks. Everyone that I know, like I come across either young or old, all still think that psychology or therapy is all about talking about your, your traumas and just keep talking about it. Till now, everyone still thinks that, that there exactly. aren't any other modalities. Right. Like I said, that book only came out in 2016. Yeah. So that's like, that's quite incredible. Like um, I'm hoping yeah. a lot of people try and like, understand, like realize that there are other modalities because I know, you know, so many are holding things and traumas that they're dealing with or not dealing with. And they, you know, they only think that there's only one way. So you know, I really hope yeah. that. Yeah. So do you think then, I guess, like, as we're speaking about all of this, that, you know, instead of identify, you know, you think there's an importance that we all should address our traumas from the past? Yeah. And find a modality that works for you. Like I knew that after getting a bachelor's degree in psychology, that talking therapy wasn't going to work for me. I could talk all about it. I could explain by the end of my degree, I could explain all of my traumas and understand them intellectually and, you know, do all of those processes. And I knew it wasn't going to get me anywhere. So I went down the road. I knew that I had experience from yoga, that that's when it felt like life started to feel like worth living. And then yeah. I actually had a sense of pleasure of being who I am and in my life. And so I followed that. Um, and, and that became the center of my work and, you know, my life's work. And oh. so, and, and I think my generation of people were the ones that were starting to wake up to, oh, this talk therapy isn't working. No. It's just embedding so, the wire, like the pathways and negative pathways are just becoming stronger and stronger yeah. and stronger to a point that you can't break out of it. Yeah. Why would yeah. And, and, you know, th- now there are some approaches to talk therapy where actually your learning skills to sort of um, circumvent or, you know, I'm sure there's some uh, aspects of talking therapy that are essential or helpful in a holistic process that includes the somatic aspects. Of yeah. It. Other modalities that, too. Yeah, and that it includes an attention being paid to whether or not the talking about the trauma is deep, more deeply ingraining the ta- trauma patterns in the body and in the nervous system, or whether it's assisting those to release. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, this has been such an eye-opening kind of conversation. Like, it's really like, you know, um, you know, something that I always think about, like just, you know, dealing with traumas or knowing... Uh, 
people in my life who have had strong traumas and they haven't been able to like uh you know don't want to address them or don't or don't want to bring them up or they've been so suppressed and you know there's stories where people just start talking about them after 20 years and they don't tell anybody about them but they're they're still they're just starting to talk about them and um yeah I didn't I, I didn't I wasn't aware of all these other modalities like I, I always thought that you know it's a ma- it's mainly just talking therapy that people like when they do all these things so that's been really great and eye-opening and uh, a lot of things that you address there with like you know even when you're talking about if your mother experienced an orgasm when, when we were get you being um, um uh, that that part aspect there i never thought about that so that's been mm-hmm. very like very interesting and, and enlightening i think yeah this is going to be a great one for listeners and they'll have many questions it'll be interesting to hear the different responses that i get for the cafe uh session where people are able to send in their responses and we're able to dive into the question even more um so yeah thank you so much summer this has been incredible Thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I look forward to perhaps you can pass some of those questions on to me. I'd love to hear about that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Get to Know You. If you enjoyed this podcast, rate, review and share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram. You can tag me at Get to Know You with Tiffany Farrow. In my mission to open conversations and access deeper dialogue, I want to hear from you listeners. The question again, should we identify traumas from the past? Leave an audio, video or a message on the Facebook or Instagram page of your response to today's question, including your name and where you are from. We'll include some different responses in next week's Get to Know You Cafe to further deepen dialogue on this topic. If you have any topics you would like us to discuss, be sure to tag me in a post with your question. Join us every Tuesday on Get to Know You.